In our recent uh, study of 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, in the passages we've looked at the last few weeks, has uh, continued to defend himself against the false teachers in the church in Corinth. As we've said, these were other teachers in Corinth who were claiming superiority to the Apostle Paul. Uh, They were putting him down because of the suffering and humiliation that he had gone through in his apostolic ministry. They were promoting themselves as superior apostles, ones who were blessed with power and strength. In the portion of 2 Corinthians that comes right before our text this evening, Paul has gone on in a long, ironic attack and correction of these false teachers, whom he sarcastically refers to a few times as the super-apostles. He's also confronted the Corinthians who have been so sympathetic to these false teachers. Paul has dealt with their false accusations against him. He's confronted the Corinthians' captivity to the world's esteem. And he's presented to them a Christian theology of weakness in all of the passages that have led up to what we'll look at tonight. And now, in our text tonight, he turns to his relationship with the Corinthians more personally. Now he gets to the question of the fundamental nature of his relationship with them. And in doing that, he puts forth a picture for them, and also for us, of what Christian relationships are supposed to look like. And so with that in mind, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11-19. through 19. The Apostle Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to do it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong." Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not burden you, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. This is God's word for us this evening. We can start looking at our text this evening by looking over the shape of Paul's arguments as a whole in this passage. And then we'll zoom in on the central matter that he's addressing here. In verses 11 through 13, Paul reproaches the Corinthians for making him defend himself. He reminds them of what he's done for them, what they have seen in his ministry. He confronts them with the fact that they should have commended him to the false teachers, rather than forcing him to commend himself to them. He puts before them a reminder that the only thing he seems to be guilty of is not taking their money. And he ends the thought again with sarcasm, ironically asking them to forgive him for this wrong of not being a financial burden to them. We can read the first paragraph as if Paul is a polemicist, primarily making an argument here, but I'm not convinced that that's the best way for us to hear him, especially based on what follows. 
Paul is about to talk about his love for the Corinthians. But they have returned his love with suspicion and false accusations. They have done this when they should have trusted him and loved him in return. They should have defended him when the false teachers started making accusations. There's a reproachful, disappointed, even hurt tone, it would seem, behind these verses. Paul really loved these people. He cared about them. And they had not loved him in return, despite all that he had done for their good. We see all of that in verses 11 through 13. From there, we can jump down to verses 16 through 18. Here, Paul deals with the accusations that some had apparently made that while Paul had publicly refused their money, he was secretly getting his hands on their money through his associates, his partners in ministry. The idea of the accusation is that Paul had been pretending not to take their money, but was using Titus and others to get money from them uh, that would then be funneled to Paul. Paul here identifies the accusation, which was maybe more being implied by some in Corinth or gossiped about in Corinth than it was being made directly. And Paul challenges them to make the accusation plainly. Apparently Paul was confident enough, not only in his own conduct, but in the conduct of his associates, to challenge anyone who would to make that accusation directly, knowing that that accusation would not stick. It seems some false accusations do th- that do thrive in darkness will shrivel and die when brought to the light. And then in verse 19, at the end, Paul explains to them why he's given this extended explanation of his ministry that he has over the previous chapters. It has not been for his own benefit that he's done this, but it's all been for them, for their sake, for their upbuilding. Paul's primary concern is that the Corinthians know Christ and reject false versions of Christ's gospel. And Paul is willing to patiently and persistently carry on this dispute with the Corinthians, not because he personally needs something from them or that he needs their approval for his own good, but because he cares about them and he wants them to walk in the truth. He's urging them to reject the false teachers and to follow the gospel that he has preached to them. Not so he can personally benefit from them, but so that they can benefit from him so that they might imitate him as he imitates Christ, rather than imitating these false teachers who walk in a way that's contrary to the gospel. Paul in this text is explaining his relationship to the Corinthians and his love for them. He's not looking to gain from them, but to love and to serve them, even though they've hurt him and failed to love him in return. Still, his chief concern, he tells them, is to work for their upbuilding and their relationship with Christ. And the heart of that theme comes in verses 14 and 15. To really feel the force of these verses, we need to think about why the Corinthians have been so upset with Paul for not taking their money. There's been a theme that keeps coming up in 2 Corinthians, you might remember. The Corinthians wanted to give Paul money, Paul refused, and the Corinthians are upset about it. They seem to continue to be upset about it. Why is this issue so important for each of them? Well, the Corinthians were used to relating to teachers in a client-patron relationship. The structure of the relationship was that they provided for the needs of their teacher, and the teacher provided teaching for them. It was a fundamentally transactional relationship. Each entered the relationship for their own benefit. It's worth analyzing that a little bit further. Uh, Polish philosopher philosopher Karol Wojtyla contrasts the utilitarian approach to relationships 
with a loving approach to relationships in the first part of his work titled Love and Responsibility. And Votila analyzes utilitarian relationships like this. He says that they're relationships we enter into where we are primarily concerned with our own benefit and where the other person is used almost like a tool, as a means to our own end. In other words, we reduce the other person, we use them to get something else that we value more than we value them. And we can structure relationships with others on that basis, if it's a relationship where each of our self-centered goals can be harmonized for a mutual benefit. And so we each agree to use the other to get something that we value more than the other person. Votila speaks of these as harmonized egoisms. We might more descriptively refer to it as self-serving, person-using transactions. These kind of relationships are ultimately self-serving. Our, our primary goal is to benefit ourselves, not someone else. They're also person-using. The, the person we interact with is not the goal or the end or the purpose of the relationship. They're merely a tool. They're a means to an end so that we can get something else. And it's fundamentally a transaction. We enter a transaction where we agree to use each other to meet our own goals because it just so happens that each of our self-serving goals lines up in such a way that we can each benefit from agreeing to interact in this way. So it's a self-serving, person-using transaction. It's all agreed, it's mutually beneficial, it's fully consensual. But in it, each person is still chiefly looking out for themselves. Votila makes the point that this kind of relationship can sometimes even look like a loving relationship. It can even be referred to by people as a loving relationship. But he stresses that ultimately it's not. The relationship is fundamentally about benefiting ourselves. And the moment that the relationship is no longer beneficial for the personal interests of one of the individuals in it, there's no real reason for them to continue in that relationship. It's self-serving, person-using, and it's fundamentally a transaction. And that's basically the kind of relationship the Corinthians wanted to have with Paul. They had money, he had teaching. Why not set up a mutually beneficial transaction? And Paul refuses. Now, we've said this before, but Paul's refusal is not because he thinks it's inherently wrong for ministers to be paid by those they minister to. In other places, Paul strongly argues for that principle. In one way, it had to do uh, with the nature of his own ministry as an apostle. But it also seems to be something that Paul was even more concerned about with the Corinthians in particular. He seems to feel that they had an especially flawed understanding of what it would mean to financially support him. They would have seen such a relationship not as loving mutual support, but as a transaction, as a self-serving, person-using transaction. And as he realizes this, Paul then refuses to enter into that kind of a relationship with them. He lays out what his relationship with them actually is like in verses 14 and 15. Let's, let's look at those again. Paul writes, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? What is Paul saying here? What is he telling us about this relationship? Well, first he says that his relationship to them is one of love. 
not a transaction. He says that at the end of verse 15. You might ask, then, what does that loving relationship look like? Well, in the first half of verse 15, he says that it's one where he not only spends what is his, but he spends his very self. He pours himself out for them, as he says somewhere else. So Paul spends himself, but that's not all that he says. There's also the question of what he's seeking in this relationship if it's not his own personal benefit. He tells us that in verse 14. He's seeking not what is theirs, not what he can get from them, but he's seeking them themselves. That is what love looks like. Carol Votila describes this as a relationship in which we give ourselves as a gift to the other person, while seeking them as a person and seeking their good above other things. We might refer to this in contrast with a self-serving person using transaction as a self-giving, person-seeking act of love. First, it's self-giving. It's willing to spend and to be spent, willing to pour out not just one's possessions, but even one's very self. Second, it's something that's person-seeking. It seeks not what it can get from other people, but it seeks the person as being more valuable than anything that we might get from them. And third, it is love. It's not a transaction, but it's love in the biblical Christian sense. Self-giving, person-seeking love. That's the kind of relationship that Paul says is right between him and the Corinthians. Far from being like the way a client relates to their patron, he says it's much more like the way that a father relates to his child. And Paul wasn't making up this model of self-giving, person-seeking love. It finds its root and foundation not only in the gospel, but even in the nature of God. God, the Bible teaches us, is a trinity. Three persons united as one God. And those three persons, we learn, are not static. As helpful as diagrams might be of the trinity, the trinity is not quite like that. They're constantly and eternally interacting with each other. Emily Stimson puts it like this. She says, we know from divine revelation that God isn't a person. He's three persons. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is a communion of love. The Father pours out his love totally and completely to the Son. The Son receives that love and pours it right back eternally and completely to the Father. And that love is so complete, containing everything both Father and Son have and are, that it too is a person, the Holy Spirit. We can, of course, add that the Spirit then pours out His love completely to the Father and Son, and the process continues round and round. In other words, the nature of the triune God is that each person of the Trinity is living in a self-giving, person-seeking, loving relationship with the other persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give themselves as gifts to the other person, not because they're seeking something else from each of them, but because they're seeking them. And as each person does this, God is a communion, a community of love. Love, the kind of love that Paul is talking about, finds its foundation, its root, its form in the nature of God, the God who is love. And that same love is shown in how God relates to his people in the gospel. The gospel is a picture of God extending that self-giving, person-seeking love of the Trinity to us, even as we are in our sin. 
God does not send some other creature to save us. He doesn't give something to save us, but he gives his very self. In Jesus Christ, God gives himself in love. And he does it not to get something from us, but he does it so that he might have us. We are what he seeks. The gospel is the self-giving, person-seeking love of God extended to sinners. And we even see that as the picture of our future hope. The picture of eternity for God and his people is described in Revelation 21 with the words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The picture of paradise for all eternity is God giving himself to his people and his people giving themselves to God in love forever. That is why it was so important to Paul that this be the shape of his relationship with the Corinthians. He wasn't being stubborn or obstinate when he refused their money. He knew them well enough to know what they would think of their relationship to him the minute that he took money from them. They would think of it as a self-serving, person-using transaction for mutual benefit. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is self-giving, person-seeking love. And Paul was determined that he would not just preach the gospel to the Corinthians with his words, but he would also preach it by his deeds. And to do that, his relationship with them had to be one of self-giving, person-seeking love. And he had to avoid any possibility that they might think of it any differently. We, of course, are called, in many ways, to the same thing. We're called to the same thing in a range of relationships, to reflect the nature of God, to reflect the heart of Christ, to show forth the pattern of the gospel by relating to others in this sort of self-giving, person-seeking love. We know that a lot of the time, but we're often not very good at it. If we're honest, the truth is that we very easily slip into the pattern of the Corinthians. Transactional relationships often seem easier. Sometimes we prefer them even when we shouldn't. But we're reminded that they're not our greatest good. They're not what our Lord calls us to. He has something much higher, much more noble, much more beautiful for us as his people. Relationships that don't just meet our needs, but that reflect the very nature of God. Paul sacrificed much to live in such a relationship towards the Corinthians. And with that, he calls us to do the same. To follow in the footprints of our Lord and to live lives that are characterized by self-giving, person-seeking love. So what might that look like? We could consider together a few different relationships. Perhaps the easiest or most obvious one to begin with might be marriage. Marriages can easily slip into a transactional mode. And it can be easy to miss because it might not be the actions themselves that change, but the way that they're thought of. The division of labor in a household, whether it's dividing household chores or dividing child care and income-producing work or anything else, all of these can be an expression of love. But the same actions can also become transactional. One of the good ways to tell where your heart is on this sort of a thing is to see how you react when you, whether in the grand scheme of things, or even just in a narrow instance, when you feel like you're putting into your marriage or your spouse more than you're getting out of it or them. 
How do you feel in those moments? How do you feel when your husband or wife requires more of you than than they are able to give you? How do you feel when your marriage feels that way for a day? What about a week? Or a month? Or a year? Or decades? How do you feel when something about them or their lives holds you back rather than propels you forward? I think in those instances, most of us can get angry. And when we do, it reveals something about the way that we think about our marriage. We may not ever consciously think it. We hopefully would never say it. But we often act as if our marriage is a self-serving, person-using transaction of mutual benefit. Our anger, when the cost of our marriage seems to be more than the benefit in that moment, our anger in those moments reveals the way that we think about it in our hearts. Conscious acceptance of that way of thinking about relationships is what lies at the foundation of our culture's increasing embrace of serial monogamy. Romantic and sexual relationships become temporary alliances that last as long as both people feel that it benefits them. The hookup culture really just takes that same line of thinking one step further. Individual interactions can be assessed on a transactional basis. If they're mutually beneficial, then people say, why not? But the fundamental nature of those relationships is still self-serving use of the other person. It is people agreeing to mutually use each other. The Christian sexual ethic is not an arbitrary restriction of sexual expression and enjoyment. The Christian sexual ethic is a demand that no human being ever be used sexually as a mere tool, a mere means to an end even if they consent to be used that way, even if it's in exchange for their equal ability to use the other person that way. In the Christian understanding, not even the other person's consent gives you the right to use them, to treat them as a mere means to an end in that way. The Christian sexual ethic demands that sex be self-giving and person-seeking. That means it cannot only be giving someone use of your body in exchange for use of their body, but you must give them your very self. Your body, your heart, your possessions, your family loyalty, your present, and your future. And not just for as long as it's beneficial to you, but for the rest of your life. That's why the vows are for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It's a total self-giving. And what it seeks is the other person. Not something from the other person, not just a part of the other person, not just a season in the life of the other person. To be truly person-seeking love, it must be all of it. The whole person, not just now, but always. That is self-giving, person-seeking love. It is, of course, a beautiful thing, and we know it when we see it. And so, married Christians, how do you need to grow in this in your marriage? How have you treated or thought of your spouse transactionally? How have you been more interested in what they can give you rather than them, themselves? And what would it look like to pursue the beauty of the love that Paul puts before us? To pursue your spouse in a way that says to them, I seek not what is yours, but you. 
As we think beyond marriage, we can ask similar questions about relationships between parents and children. Here again, it's easy to slip into a transactional mode, and it often takes this form. The parents require some kind of outward obedience or conformity, and in exchange, the parents leave their kids alone in other areas. They don't probe any deeper. And a certain level of peace can be maintained that way. But it's a peace from from a mutually beneficial, self-serving transaction, not from person-seeking love. Now, that's not to say, of course, that outward obedience is not important. It is. But it's important as part of a larger whole. By itself, its value is a lot lower. This can happen, for instance, for those of us with young children, when our focus is exclusively on their outward conformity. And discipline and consequences no longer become a tool to shepherd their hearts, but a transactional tool. They obey to avoid negative consequences. It brings some level of peace when they do actually obey. And then we stop there. There might be peace there, but that's not self-giving, person-seeking love. Such love requires parents to seek to know their kids. To be satisfied not just with outward obedience, but to want to know out of loving concern and interest what is really going on in their kids' hearts and minds. It's not satisfied with outward peace. In fact, it's willing to sacrifice outward peace for a real, personal, heart-level relationship with one's children. Because the child is more important than the peace. And the same dynamic can play out with older children as well, with adolescents and teenagers. A transaction can be reached, though it's never spoken out loud. The teen behaves in the right way, in the right settings, and then no questions are asked about what they do in private. The teen sits through the right church services and Sunday school classes, and then no real meaningful questions are asked about what the teen really thinks or believes, about how they feel about what they're being taught. We can pursue external conformity and reward them by essentially leaving them alone. Now, it's hard to know our teens. They can be pretty avoidant. Believe me, I know. But we should persist. We should persist, and we should be willing to be a pain in the neck if we have to be. We should persist, not because we want to make sure that their conformity is consistent at every point, though we should care about that, not because we want to check for chinks in their behavior, but primarily because we want to know them. We want to know their hopes and their dreams. We want to know their fears and their anxieties. We want to know where they are with their beliefs and their doubts. We want to help them wrestle with their faith rather than demanding that they give the right answers externally. That is what self-giving, person-seeking love looks like. And all of this extends to friendships as well. Michael Brendan Doherty, who I seem to be on a bit of a kick on, I quoted him a few weeks ago, but he had an article just recently on what he calls the declining social treasury in our culture. He writes, there's a paradox afflicting our politics. It's the contrast between increasing standards of living and increased social anxiety and unhappiness. You notice it in the headlines every day. By the normal measures, the economy is roaring. Unemployment continues to dive. Wages are starting to creep up. The market is frothing. And yet as all these trends have gone in the right direction, your friends and neighbors insist that things are getting worse in America. 
the U.S. keeps slipping in rankings of its self-reported happiness. The Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which is a United Nations initiative, explained the slide in rankings by noting that, quote, social support networks in the U.S. have weakened over time. Social support networks in the U.S. have weakened over time. What do they mean by that? Well, they mean that most people in our culture have fewer and fewer people that they can really rely on. Marriage rates are declining, family sizes are shrinking, but it's not just that. Doherty goes on, other surveys show massive increases in loneliness, with progressive generational decline in the art of friendship. On average, Americans have one fewer close friend today than a generation ago. Many men report having no close friendships. The youngest Americans, the one using social media the most, are also socializing the least in real life. Doherty goes on to point out that even for the elites in our culture, those who tend to have a wide network of social connections, that network is more and more a network of favor trading than it is a network of loyalties and responsibilities. We might say that those networks have become more and more clearly transactional rather than relationships of love. Doherty suggests that this trend may actually be part of what's behind the increases in both nationalism and interest in socialism in our politics. Increasingly lonely Americans feel that they have fewer and fewer people who have a sense of loyal duty to them. Fewer and fewer people who will help them and share the burdens that they face in life. On the gut level, we could see that there would be an emotional draw to nationalism which emphasizes our duties to one another. And, for that matter, towards socialism, which emphasizes shared burdens. When family or friends or that person on social media makes a passionate appeal either for some form of hypernationalism or some form of state-run socialism, many of us can easily respond with arguments about economic and political theory. But what if politics isn't really what's going on most of the time? What if the person is really just lonely and looking for something that will unite them in a deeper way to other people? We are a culture where our social connections more and more resemble transactions. Fewer and fewer friendships are characterized by self-giving, person-seeking love. Brothers and sisters, we Christians should be much better at friendship than we usually are. Perhaps as people living in this culture, one of the greatest signs of the gospel working in our hearts and shaping the pattern of our lives will be us pursuing these kinds of friendships. Friendships that get below the surface. Friendships that involve commitment. Friendships that seek not what we can gain from the other person, but that seek the other person themselves. Such friendships are hard work. They require self-giving. But they are what we are designed for as human beings made in the image of the self-giving triune God. This pattern of self-giving person-seeking love should play out in our marriages, in our parenting relationships, in our friendships. It should, of course, also play out in our church. And in particular, in how we relate to those that we minister to. As I've seen it unfold, as I've thought about it, I am excited about our Isaiah 58 ministries here at Faith Press. I'm excited for our growing passion to minister to the local needs around us, to love our neighbors in tangible ways, 
I'm excited about our increasing desire to bring healing to those within our reach. I'm excited for us to grow and expand that kind of kingdom work in the months and years ahead. And as we do that, one thing that we must be careful about as we do such work is to make sure that it is an extension of the kind of love that Paul talks about here. We have to be willing to spend ourselves on this kind of work. We have to be willing to seek not just things from those that we serve, whether it's their approval or their thanks or even their conversion, but we need to genuinely seek them. We need to see them and care for them as persons, not projects. A person knows when they're being treated as a project. And they know that such treatment, even if it meets their felt need, still dehumanizes them a little bit. Because the person serving them is not really seeking them, but is seeking some sort of notch in their good works belt. And so, as we pursue these ministries, which we should, which the gospel calls us to, let us spend and be spent as a congregation serving those around us, preaching the gospel by our deeds, showing the mercy of the kingdom of Christ by what we do. And as we do that, let us always be sure that we are serving people made in the image of God first, recognizing their dignity and desiring to know them, not treating them as a means to an end, as a project for us to complete. Finally, this pattern of love should push us to reflect on our relationship with God. We far too often treat our relationship to God as a transaction. We give faith and obedience and maybe our tithe, and God gives us heaven and, hopefully, a relatively enjoyable and non-tragic life between now and then. But Paul's pattern of love points to Christ's. It points to God's. And it reminds us that God is more interested in you than in your obedience. He's more interested in you than in your doctrine. He's more interested in you even than your tithe. That doesn't mean that those things don't matter. Again, they do. But as we said this morning, they are to be an expression of a loving relationship, not items in a transaction. Our default can be trying to relate to God transactionally. But he's not related to us like that. He has given himself, not just his things. He's shared his person with us, not just a set of spiritual benefits. He loves us with a self-giving, person-seeking love. Will we seek to love him the same way? Or like the Corinthians, will we try to turn it into a transaction? If we do try to make it a transaction, then, like Paul, God will resist us. It is a scary thing to really give ourselves to God, to reveal our heart to Him in prayer, to seek His heart in Scripture, to focus on Him as a person rather than as an idea when we come before Him in worship. But that is what the Gospel is. Paul implies in 2 Corinthians that our relationships reflect our view of the Gospel. The false teachers sought out transactional relationships because... At the bottom of it all, they had a transactional view of the gospel. Paul sought out self-giving, person-seeking, loving relationships because that is how he viewed the gospel. We are all preaching by our deeds, by how we relate to those that God has placed in our lives. 
The question is not if we are preaching, but what we are preaching. Will we preach a false, self-interested, transactional gospel or a self-giving gospel of love? What will we preach to our spouse? What will we preach to our kids? What will we preach to our friends? What will we preach to those that we minister to? What will we preach to the way that we relate to God? We possess the priceless pearl of the gospel. Christ has shown us the beauty of holiness. And so by his spirit, may we lovingly give ourselves to the people that God has placed in our lives, seeking not what is theirs, but them. Amen.